Okay, we turn to the passage for today in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It is on page 1193 of the Church Bibles. And we're going from verses 1 to 16. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead, even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to say. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Well, Dan opened up this book to us last week and for the next few weeks we're going to be looking at this letter of Timothy, thinking about family, church family, and how we look out for each other. And the key verse, I think, to explain why this letter was written is back in chapter 3. So just flip back a page, you can see chapter 3, verse 14. This is why Paul wrote this letter. He says in verses 14 and 15, Paul says, although I hope to come to you soon, that is, he he hopes to come to see Timothy and the church in Ephesus, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Do you see why Paul writes the letter here? He's writing so that the church, the people, will know how to conduct themselves, how we behave, how family works together when it looks as big as it is here. See, we are a diverse group of people, aren't we? We're not just a social club that meets day by day or week by week. We have one thing in common here as a fellowship. We have met the person of Jesus. We know him and we love him and we are united by that truth as a family. But this is a big household, isn't it? 
You know, most families don't have two or three hundred people in them that you meet and see each week, let alone the thousands and the millions, perhaps, around the world that are also our brothers and sisters. But the question Paul really wants us to know in this letter is, is how do we relate to each other? How do we live as family? How do we treat older men? How do we treat women? What about children? For those who aren't married? What about widows? Chapter 5, our passage today, it goes into detail about how we do such things. It says we don't treat older men harshly. Chapter 5, verse 1. We treat them like they were our actual father, with respect, with deference. Younger men, we treat them like a brother, someone who you fight your battles with, someone who is a friend you walk alongside. Women, older women, we, we treat like mothers. Younger women, we treat as sisters with purity, caring for, protecting, treating them with dignity and honor, being pure in our thoughts and our actions towards one another. See the words used here in, in, in Timothy? It's all the language of family, isn't it? Look around you right now. Look, look around this room. Do you see your family here sitting beside you? Do you know this family was this big, your family? Some people think my my family is fairly big. I have four children, slightly above average. How about the 400 that walk through this room uh, each week through all our activities that we have here? This is church. This is family. This is the one place in the world, I think, that unites people together more than anything else. It unites the most diverse group of people. And it brings us together in, in real love. We serve each other we give of ourselves. And when church, when it works well, it's a glorious picture. It's a beautiful picture where we have concern for others. And this concern, this love, this kindness, it's flowed through the centuries, through churches, and it shaped our very culture that we live in. Here in the West, as we know it today, we almost take it for granted, I think, how we show compassion so readily in our society. Because our society, the West, we've been built on, on Christian, on biblical values. More than I think most of us even realize. I've, re- I've read this fascinating book recently. It's called The Book That Made Your World. And it explains how the Western culture has been influenced and built on foundations that come directly from Scripture. That come from God, from the heart of the Lord Jesus. And when the church lives by them... It's rippled out through the centuries to make the culture that we know of today. Through the 19th and 20th centuries, though, these last few hundred years, we've seen the authority of the Bible undermined constantly. It's been attacked, it's been ridiculed, it's been discarded from from most public squares. And because of that, we've seen new philosophies New ideas come up, new worldviews of how you explain all that we see around us. And these worldviews, these philosophies have tried to, to fill the gap that when you take this book out of the public square, what are you left with but man's ideas to try to think how we can live and how we, we do life and how we treat and respect one another? That's why throughout this letter of 1 Timothy that Paul writes, he urges Timothy, he urges all church leaders to devote themselves to Scripture, to carefully guard the truths that were entrusted to Paul and the apostles, 
to be wary of those who abandon the faith and go after things taught by demons, he says. Because he says, look back at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, the time will come when people will abandon the faith. They will follow deceiving spirits. Their consciences will be seared as if with a hot iron. I think Paul was speaking about today, 2019. This is the culture that we live in now. We are seeing what happens when we try to pull out the foundation from what makes a caring family care, what makes a society function well as it has done for many centuries here. When we remove that foundation that has shaped every part of our culture and society, we begin to see things unravel, morals in decay, families breaking apart, the very things we see in our society today. Our passage in chapter 5, it focuses on one particular group of people, one of the most vulnerable groups, widows. Apparently that word widow, it didn't mean someone whose, whose husband had died, though of course that's one meaning of it. I think Paul uses it more widely as an adjective, so I'm told, to describe any woman who has suffered loss of some sort, whether they were left alone by their husband's death or perhaps by desertion or divorce or even imprisonment of some sort. So that, that category of widows is quite broad. It's those who have been abandoned, who are left helpless for whatever reason. And so without a breadwinner around, they are left very helpless, very vulnerable, without any means to provide for herself. And especially if she didn't have any family nearby to care for her. Now, there are actually very few communities outside of the Christian world that have embraced this idea of caring for those in need outside of your immediate family. I think most will care for their closest and dearest. But to share the burden as a community, as a church, for the most vulnerable among us, it is a peculiarly Christian trait. But sadly, as you look around Great Britain here today, we're seeing these attitudes evaporating. Like, like streams in a desert, they are disappearing quickly. These values that, that have brought so much blessing to us as a culture are being discarded in the name of progress and rights and autonomy because God has been ejected from the public square. That's why the work of the Christian Institute is so vital to upholding the truth of this book so that the values that have blessed us as a culture will remain and we will continue to see the blessing we've known here. I work for a group called the ICMDA, is our prayer diary, and we are a group of Christian doctors and dentists all around the world. And one of the biggest challenges that, that Christian medics face today is the pressure to be involved in things like abortion and euthanasia. Abortion, it's the ending of a life before it is born. Euthanasia, that is when a doctor intentionally ends the life after you're born. And there are constant battles in our society right now to make it legal or, or easier for doctors to be able to do both of those for any reason, for anyone. Just in the last few months here, I'm not sure if you're aware, but in the UK we've seen what's called the Royal College of Physicians, the RCP. One of the most respected, the most historical fellowships of, of doctors and physicians well, they've just dropped their opposition to assisted suicide, which is another word for euthanasia, really. Officially, they are now neutral on this issue. So they're not for it, but they're not against it either. And this is now 
encourage various groups to lobby our parliament to change the law on assisted suicide, to legalize it. And just last month, there was a debate in our parliament whether we should allow doctors to intentionally kill their patients if they so asked. They tried to rush it through the parliament just before the prime minister changed. Fortunately, the review that they were hoping for has been discarded. It's been dropped by Boris Johnson. But there are eight countries in the world, and the number is growing, where euthanasia of some sort is legal. They're all Western countries. They're all rejecting their Christian heritage that they've been built up on. But do you know what the stats show us about these countries that have legalized euthanasia? Do you know what the people say when they ask why they would like a doctor to help them end their life? One of the most common reasons people give is that particularly as they get older, they fear or they think they have become a burden to those around them. And so they ask a doctor to help them die. This is devastating. When did being a burden on anybody, on your family, on your community, when did that become a bad thing? We, we all recognize that there are certain times in our lives when we are more of a burden to others. But does that mean, therefore, that your life is not worth living because you need to depend on someone else? Our culture has been influenced by an ideology that says that if you're a widow, don't trouble your family. Ask a doctor to end your life for you. It'll be better for everyone. No one ever quite says it in those words, but that's the thoughts, the subtext underneath every article in The Guardian celebrating someone who goes off to Dignitas to end their life. They say, I want to be in charge of my own life and my own death. I don't want to be a burden on my family. Every person has been made in the image of God and is valuable and treasured to him. We are loved by our maker. And it's not a bad thing to be a burden on others. As we first enter this world, as little Jesse has been looked after by his parents, he is completely dependent on his parents to care for him, to provide, to nurture, to raise him. This is something that most parents choose to go into, to, to look after these children. It's a blessing to have children. It's a joy, it's a privilege to raise them. As we grow into adults, most of us become independent from our parents. We a life caring for ourselves. Though during illness or crises, we often return to the family home or, or just when you finish university, you come back and live with mum and dad again. We turn to our family at times for help and care. And then most of us, as we get older, we often look to our children this time to help care for us and to support us as we physically and practically are unable to. This is the way that community is built, that God has designed the church to be, that people to care for one another. We all go through times of helping others and being helped ourselves, some more than others. This is the give and take of life. It's how God designed community, to be interdependent on one another, the strong for the weak, the rich for the poor, the, the old for the young, and then the young for the old. This is life as we know it. And this model of caring is embedded all the way through the Bible. Our passage in 1 Timothy, it goes into detail about how we care for the widows among us. And the first practical instruction that it gives, and there are a few of them, it says that we ought to look to our immediate family for support when we're in need. So look at verse 4 of chapter 5. 
It says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, then these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. Do you see God's heart here in these verses? What pleases God? What does true religion look like? It is to care for your family. Moses gives us these same commandments in the beginning books of the Bible. We're told to honor our mother and father. It's one of the most foundational truths that made it to the list of the ten most important truths called the Ten Commandments, honoring your parents. Jesus himself upheld these ideas. He had to drum this home to the various Pharisees and the teachers. In Mark 7, he rebuked the Pharisees when they tried to weasel out of doing anything for their elderly parents. Rather than financially supporting them, the Pharisees would give any funds they had and devote them as Corbin, which is said they were set apart for God. I don't have to help my parents with them. This is for God's work. But Jesus saw straight through their hypocrisy. It seemed very pious. But they knew, God knew that he, these Pharisees were keeping their wealth for themselves rather than caring for their vulnerable parents. As we care for the widows and orphans, this is a theme that runs all the way through this book. And it is what sets apart God's people from those around them. Jesus himself modeled this as he hung on the cross, dying for our sin. And the most defining moment in all history, the crucifixion. John records for us just a little detail about some words that Jesus said. In John 19, verse 26, while Jesus is hanging there on the cross, he said to his soon-to-be-widowed mother, He looks down and says to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he looked across to John, one of his closest disciples, and he says to John, Here is your mother. And the rest of the verse says, We're told from that time on, John took Mary into his home to care for this widow. This is the mark of true Christian worship that Jesus himself modeled as he died for our sins on the cross. Do you see how important it is to care for the family around us and those in need? And that passage, chapter 5, verse 8, it reveals the seriousness of caring for our parents or not caring. Do you know what's worse than being an unbeliever? Do you know what's worse than denying Christ and being unfaithful to him? Look at 5, verse 8. It says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do you hear that? To not provide for your household is to deny the faith. It's worse than an unbeliever. I'm shocked at how severe these words are. Are you? Do you see the highest value that the Lord puts on caring for those in need, of giving of ourselves, to those vulnerable amongst us, whether that's our money, whether that's our time, whether that's our home or or the holiday that we had planned over the summer, to care for the widows and our families. I've seen beautiful examples of people doing just this and people I know. I've got a good friend whose, whose parents were getting quite old and unable to care for themselves in their home anymore. And so with her husband, she prayed. They prayed about how and what they would do to care for them. 
And I came to the decision that, that she would leave her husband and, her, and the home and actually go move back in with her parents for a time and to care for her parents there, to live full time as a carer for her mum and dad. Her husband had to work still and go into town, and so it was quite a, a sacrifice to make. They saw each other when they had opportunity to, but for over a year and for however long it would take, she's living with them, caring for them, putting into practice the words here of 1 Timothy 5. I know someone else who was, was moving into a new home, and they were thinking about how they would get it ready for, them, for themselves and, and, and what sort of building work they might do. And rather than just think about their own needs and their family, but they looked ahead to the future. What would we do if my parents were ever in need? How would we care or support them? And they actually built an annex on their house in preparation for the time, if it ever came, when their parents would need somewhere to live and have care. Now, their parents were in good health. There was no immediate need. But they were thinking ahead. How can we best prepare to put these words into practice? To care for their family, to repay their parents because this is pleasing to God, it says. I'm sure you know of other stories too, maybe your own, of how you've given up so much to care for those who are in need in your family, particularly as they near the end of their life. So what phase of life are you in then this morning? Do you have godly children who are looking to care for you if and when the time comes? Or do you have parents yourself who are in need right now? How are you honoring them, repaying them for their care of you. That's hard work. It's often a thankless task when sometimes they don't even recognize you or know who you are. But we are told here that this is pleasing to God. This pleases him when we care for those among us. Maybe your family are all in good health. Maybe there's no immediate need right now. But how prepared are you for when that day may come? Are you ready for the time when you may need to support a widow in your family? There's an old proverb in the Bible, Proverbs 28, verse 27. It says, He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes has many curses. As we give to those in need, particularly for the the widows and orphans among us, we will know the Lord's blessing. Jesus reminds us that he says, whatever you do for the least among us, you do for him. We serve and worship the Lord Jesus by our actions. But what happens then to the vulnerable among us if there is no immediate family to care? If they haven't haven't had children or they are no longer around or maybe they're never married, what then? Well, this is why Paul is so clear on describing the church as a family, as a household of people. The next few verses of chapter 5, it describes a register that the church had where they financially supported those who didn't have any close family nearby. There are certain conditions. The widows had to be over 60. They had to have lived godly lives. And if a widow was younger, well, then they were encouraged to remarry. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. That old saying is true, isn't it? That the devil makes work for idle hands. He encourages those who can to marry, to find the support around you of family. 
But also the advice is very practical. It's very pragmatic. He sums it all up in verse 16, I think. He says, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them. Why? Well, it's so that the church can help those who are really in need. It's very pragmatic. Like with most things, we have limited resources here among us. How do we best use what God has blessed us with as a church? Well, for all of us, worship, honoring God, religion, true religion begins in our homes. We care for those closest to us. And for those who don't have that blessing, well, we are part of one big family. We all care for one another here. And so in this church, I know of many examples where informally, one couple helps another. And there are many ways that this has happened throughout the way where a need is known and someone has stepped in to provide. It's a beautiful example of the church caring for one another. Formally, as, as a church, we have what's called the discretionary fund. And that's a fund for, for anyone who is in need. And they were to speak to one of the elders. There's one person who oversees that fund. And they were able to support and help those when there truly is a need. So if that is, an, if that is you then do speak to one of the, those in the leadership here to help care and provide for those when people are struggling. In verse 5, it gives us good advice about how we cope when there are needs among us. It says, The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. We can all look to our God who has provided all that we need our salvation, our very life, the hope of an eternity with him. As you look to him, he will provide what you need. His grace will be enough. As I finish, let me remind us about what our Lord Jesus has done for all of us. And and let what he has done, let that be a motivation for us as we put our religion into practice, as we live out our faith. The Apostle John tells us that we love because God first loved us. That's why we can care for others, because we have been cared for in the most ultimate way possible. God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son to die for us. So that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but we will have eternal life forever with our God. This is how much God loves you. This is what he has done for us. That's why we, we worship him together each week here as a church. And so as we care for the most vulnerable among us, we remember first the loving sacrifice of the Son of God, how he served us, and he laid down his life for us. The opening chapter of this letter, Paul reminds us of the transformation that God had made to his life. Maybe flick back to chapter 1. Look at verse 15. Paul says, Here is a trustworthy saying. This deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So as we reflect on the love of Jesus to this broken world, 
We start with our own families. We express what self-sacrifice looks like so that our communities, this town of Caterham and beyond, so that they would see something of our self-giving God, of our Savior. For it's such a joy to be able to glorify God in this way, to reveal to the world around us that we have been transformed by a loving God. Because each one of us spiritually, we were in dire need. And we praise God that he has rescued us. He provides everything for us, for our salvation, for life itself. And he calls us now then to go with that same attitude of love, of care, of sacrifice to those in need around us, to be a a church where we love and support one another, whatever phase of life we're going through. This is what church family should look like. So as you look around yourselves this morning, and you see your brothers and sisters sitting next to you, how will we show radical, Christ-like love to the church here among us? Perhaps as we love one another, we can halt this slide into despair that our culture seems to be going into around us, where things like euthanasia are seen as the solution to the needs among us. Instead, as a church, we can be radically different. We can embrace God's heart for family, for sharing one another's burdens, and for practicing true religion. That's our challenge for us this morning. So let me close by reading those words again from chapter 1. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.